6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Whenever we enter the Word of God, we want to do it with a word of prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would attend to us to open our hearts and lives to that Word, that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we commit this hour and ourselves. Amen. Well, we are in the final session of eight sessions on the Epistles to the Thessalonians. Five chapters for the first one, and now we're in the third of three for the second one. So we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's very interesting. The Thessalonian epistles, of course, are known as the eschatological epistles of the New Testament. And it's interesting to realize how much of that material is focused on practical admonitions. Yes, we treasure these epistles because they they open up a number of uh, insights in terms of our eschatological concerns. But all the way through here, at the beginning and all the way through and now at the end, Paul emphasizes the practical implications of all of this. And so there are three major sections to this final chapter. First is just pray and be patient, first five verses. But then the next few verses, you, you better work if you want to eat. They had a uh, problem with loafing, and we'll talk about that when we get there. And the third section, verses 14 to 18, is to be doers, not just hearers of the Word. So many of us love to come to these conferences, take notes, and study our Bible, and make our outlines and diagrams, and that's all wonderful. But if they just sit on our bookshelves, that's one thing. No, we need to be doers of the Word, not just hearers. Okay, let's read these brief uh, verses through, and then we'll uh, try to unpack them a little bit. So Paul says in chapters 3, starting verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts on, into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we have behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail, night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you and to us, to follow us. For even when we were with you, 
This we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. If any man obey not our word by dismissal, note that man, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token of every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So that's the epistle. A, a, just an 18-verse epistle. So let's take the first five verses which are all about praying and be patient. Verse 1 said, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. There's three requests here. Free course, that the word of the Lord may run, that it may be glorified, that it accomplishes its purpose for which it is sent. And that is, of course, God's word is never void, always accomplishes God's purpose. So we have prayerfulness, preservation, protection, and patience. And I always throw these kinds of things up with my tongue in my cheek because it seems that seminary types always like to have alliteration. So since they all start with P, they must be true. And I'm being facetious, of course. But anyway, let's move on. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men are of not faith. You know, have you prayed for your pastor that he might, I don't mean just here, I mean in general, that... Uh, that, he, that your pastor might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. You know, it's one thing for guys like me to go from platform to platform, travel around the country, and, and uh, uh, sound off on our little hobby horses, whatever. It's quite another for the pastor who has to stay there and clean up the mess and live with the people and deal with the practical implications of just life. And indeed, in many groups, there are unreasonable and wicked men, even today, not only back there in Thessalonians, but even today. And so you might give that some thought. They had fanatical Jewish opponents at Corinth, you may recall. The Thessalonians had personal experience with such antagonists all the way through. Paul is harassed with unreasonable and wicked men. And so uh, he had a very bitter experience with the opponents in Berea, of course. So even as he was writing this letter from Corinth, the threatening attitude uh, and the attack followed. This is all Acts 17 and Acts 18, if you want to refresh your memory on all, all of that. Clearly, it was not smooth going. Now, you can't pray for Paul anymore. You know, he's done his thing. But you can pray for Chuck. <laughs> I won't take the time to give you a chronicle of the bizarre behavior that we encounter in what some people would call professional Christianity. Uh, I taught the Bible for Oh, 25 years at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, as a layman. While I was busy with my executive career, I did that as a form of recreation for myself. I just enjoyed it. But then uh, some uh, roughly 20 years ago, we turned it around and made our hobby our profession and done this professionally. And I have to tell you, the biggest shock in my executive life was going from the public boardrooms into so-called professional Christianity. As I think I've mentioned several times, it was like going from a convent to a brothel. The ethics that I experienced in the public boardrooms was a thousand times higher than I find in the Christian community. And it's not because they're bad people, just untrained. They have no grasp what the word fiduciary means. And yet at the same time, 
It's astonishing to me to see how uh, tortious conduct is very common. Things that if you were in the secular world, you'd, uh, you'd uh, uh, file a lawsuit for slander and libel by the conduct of some people. We don't do that in the Christian community, obviously, because it would be unseemly. So, but you might pray for me, because uh, we uh, find some people that we uh, cannot deal with, be, not because of doctrinal issues, because of business ethics. We've uh, had an occasion where we have to uh, separate ourselves because of what we regard as unsavory business practices. But what's astonishing is how many other people will then jump on that and spread slander and lies, and it's disturbing. So I, I do covet your prayers that, that we may indeed be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And the slander and deceit that pervades the many Christian platforms and websites today is shocking. The stuff that goes on the internet is just absolutely amazing. It's astonishing how I used to joke about that when I first got into professional Christianity. I say, I, I look for the day when I will be misquoted as much as Chuck Smith and Hal Lindsey are. And I was being facetious. Well, I, I guess I think I've arrived because I'm misquoted and slanderized by as much as anyone, I guess. But, you know, it's interesting how the ethics and the loyalties of a combat team uh, in our regular military vastly exceed the betrayals that one encounters among bodies of believers. We are a combat team. We are in a, a war against Satan. And in a, in a real combat team, you uh, develop a camaraderie where you put your hand in the, uh, your lives in the hands of your, your comrades. And if you want to, if, I assume many of you have seen the Band of Brothers, which talks about the 101st and its history, and its, its distinguished history and, of sacrifice and commitment. But you know, within a combat team, that bonding is, is, is part of the dynamics there. And it's tragic that we don't have that same sense of loyalty and commitment as we uh, fight the battle of our king. So anyway, let's move on. Second verse says, And that we may be delivered from unreasonable wicked men, for all men have not the faith. The definite article should be there, not just faith, but the faith. All men have faith of some sort. But what he's really dealing with here is faith, faith in our Lord Jesus. And faith in the doctrines as the apostles taught them, is what he's saying. And what is biblical faith? It's an unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. We deal in relationships, not in religion. Jesus Christ was the most anti-religious man that ever walked the face of the earth. It's a relationship to him, but it's a, a, loyal, it's a loyal commitment kind of faith. The faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. The word established there is the inner stability and uh, this is sort of a reaction to the day of the Lord view, if you will. In other words, they were very frightened. Remember, remember the whole context here of the Second Thessalonian letter. And so he said, may establish you, stabilize you. Don't be so uh, churned up, as he mentioned in the previous chapter. And uh, it, this reminds us, of course, of Luke 22. And Jesus prayed for Peter, knowing that uh, he would need that prayer support. And keep you from evil. Guard, it's a military term. Guard you from the evil one. This conveys a military image, implying conflict and armed protection from violent attack is the, is the flavor of the Greek, if you will. It's, it's amazing, by the way, I haven't bothered to focus too much on this, but it's amazing how many military terms uh, uh, are sprinkled all through this epistle. Keep you in a guarding sense here. Now, it's interesting here that uh, it's, there's an ambiguous gender, neuter, general, masculine. It's a context thing. Anyway, I won't get into all that here. 
behind all forces are living wills. Sometimes we think of evil as a force or some kind of impersonal tide or something. No, there are sentient beings behind these things. And that's why this idea of keeping you guard from the evil one, you're dealing with a, a sentient, hostile adversary behind the scenes. He says, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will the things which we command you. In other words, man is worthy of trust is what's implied here. And that's echoed in other passages, of course. And you might remind yourself here in your notes that we just finished, and when, we, at the, when we finished the first epistle in chapter 5, we actually listed 22 commandments. There may be more. That was just the way that one commentator, Javer and McGee, happened to point out that there are commandments. Not the Ten Commandments. There's 22 commandments just in that one chapter of Christ. And so uh, I just want to remind you that when he says, we command you, he's, there are commandments here. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of Christ. The direct, it's an aorist tense, summarily states the prayed for action without indicating the process involved, but into the patient waiting for Christ. And the word patience here is remaining under, like under a burden, and that kind of patient. Patient waiting for the coming Christ indeed. See, remember he said, occupy till I come. See, the whole, these are eschatological epistles. We saw the emphasis on the rapture in the first epistle. We see their concern because they thought the day of the Lord had come and that they're in the, the great tribulation and they're all anxious about that, which of course was an indication that Paul had taught them a pre-trib posture, not a post-trib posture. And so they thought either they'd been mistaught or they had somehow missed the rapture. That's really the thrust of, of Paul's second letter to undo the damage by that forgery. But here now he's emphasizing to settle down. It's going to establish us. Direct your hearts in the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. So on the one hand, we get excited as we think about the rapture. and We know some of these things are not far away. At the same time, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we were instructed to occupy till he does come. And he's going to talk about that, not loafing, getting to work, and all that will be forthcoming here shortly. The next section, verses 6 through 13, is you need to work if you expect to eat. And so he didn't want sponges in the body of Christ. Everyone's supposed to pull their weight there. So now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Boy, that's interesting, that we are to withdraw from some of our brothers. We don't exclude them from the fellowship, but we shame them to recognize their expectations here. We command you. We are to follow these commandments. Those are not suggestions, they're commands. That's, there's a military term being used here. And he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the full confessional title, and that's what in the Old Testament was always used of yod or Yahweh, or Yehovah, however you want to say it. And Exodus 5, Leviticus 19, and on and on. Now, he, it's interesting that Paul transfers that form of address directly to the Messiah here in this, in this epistle. That's another deity issue. That ye withdraw yourselves. And this is more stern than his instructions were in the previous epistle, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and this is over behavior, not doctrine. You know, it's interesting that uh, uh, often our problems, even within the body, are not necessarily doctrinal. They're just plain behavior. And it's a shocking to see how many people indulge in what would be called in the law torts, torturous conduct and misbehavior. And he says, withdraw yourselves from every brother. 
So you don't deny that he's a brother. He's still your brother. But his fault must be censured. That's what he's suggesting here. Addicted to deliberate loafing, some people are. They're very active, like busybodies, but not accomplishing much. And in fact, by doing so, they interfere with the work of others. And we're going to pick up on that in verse 11 here shortly. He says, For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. In other words, Paul points to himself and his gang there, the three guys that are writing this letter, as examples, apostolic examples. And not just some principle, but their actual personal conduct. And that's part of the secret to discipleship, by the way. We talk a lot about learning the Word of God, but the people really grow by, we, we are instructed to make disciples. That's more than just teaching. It's, by, it's giving them a, a role model, an example to follow. And many of us are very poor role models. We need to deal with that. Paul was not a sponge. He was anxious not to be misunderstood, and he has the right. He could have asserted his right as an apostle. No, he earned his own way. He, always, he, he was very anxious to be a... Uh, an example, and he voluntarily waived his right as an apostle. He could have been justified in charging them for his presence, but uh, he waived that to, to set an example. He says, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. He didn't sponge off you. He paid for what he ate and so forth. He didn't raid the icebox without, you know, whatever. So neither did, he, we, did we eat any man's bread for naught. But we wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. So even though he committed himself to teaching them for those three weeks that he was there, nevertheless, while he was there, he worked. He found ways to earn and he paid his way so he would not be a burden to be an example. He paid his own way. Heavy, heavy thing there. Heavy thing there. Not because we have not power or the right, so to speak, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. And even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's the basic idea here. See, deliberate loafers were not to be supported out of a, fail, a false sense of uh, charity. We often probably lean the other way. No, in a healthy body, uh, people should be assuming responsibility there. Some of this was an abuse of Acts 2 and 4. We find those events in those things. The dignity of human labor is underscored all through the Scripture. Work is a privilege as well as a responsibility is the flavor all the way through the Scripture. Now, we are in a warfare ourselves with what many people would call socialism. Socialism is a form of theft. And it's a spiritual, the spiritual goal is to destroy biblical traditions, family, and private property. The concept of private property is biblical. That's why it says, Thou shalt not steal in the Ten Commandments. The personal liberty has always been linked to the rights of property. You see the property rights erode, you'll quickly discover your personal liberties will erode. The Bible is a commitment to family, a commitment to private property, and socialism is a cultural attack on everything biblical. It's an attack on the family. It's an attack on individual responsibility. It's an attack on uh, all of these things. The Nazis, you know, maybe we all, we all cringe at the history in Germany and during World War II and all that. The Nazis were the National Socialists. Was the, it's what really came the contraction Nazis out of it. And they were socialists, and they also were unabashedly occultic. There are some very interesting books and materials on how dark uh, the, the, and that was before they came to power. They were part of the Thule Society, an occultic society, and they were very much into the occult. 
And uh, we, you saw the benefit. New Age, by the way, is also pantheistic to begin with. Then it turns to be not to Gnosticism, and then it becomes occultic also. All of that is in, in preparation for a form of dictatorship. That's the same thing socialism leads to dictatorship. Anyway, let's move on. See, we're not, for, we're not committed to democracy. We're committed to liberty. The big difference. Democracies are unstable forms of government. Because in a democracy, the population quickly discovers they can feed themselves at the public treasury. And they become in, in, inherently unstable. That's why our fa founding fathers gave us a republic in which our commitment is to a rule of law, not to the rule of personality. And it's endured for several centuries. But we're now undoing that with astonishing rapidity. But let's move on to verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all but our busybodies. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many are familiar with examples of that in our current society. And this is almost a verbatim repetition of 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. It's interesting that Paul apparently kept informed through the thriving commercial contacts between Corinth and Thessalonica. So he was aware of these trends, obviously. And there's, a, there's some, by the way, some very keen-edged wordplay in the original here working at nothing, yet too busily working, busybodies who do no business, and not busy men, but busybodies. There's all that kind of wordplay in the Greek, but it, even in the English you can get the flavor of it here. Busybodies instead of being busy. The view that the Lord would come at any moment stimulated their native tendency to give themselves over to excited discussion in preference to dull manual labor. Or you'd rather sit around a coffee thing and argue about eschatological details rather than get off their behinds and go do the work that they should be uh, doing to, to earn their bread, so to speak. We, we should be careful of that. And this is a, a version of rapturitis. Many people accuse pre-trib proponents that they have a, 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 such a folk, a expectation of rapture a week from Tuesday that they don't plan to send their kids to college and all that sort of thing. And those are legitimate criticisms of a cultural la a laziness, if you will. Anyway, now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. In other words, not be busybodies, but in quietness, work constructively, accomplish things, and provide for their own needs. It's interesting to me that in these eschatological epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, so much of the text is devoted to simple, practical living. And eschatology should enhance that, not distract that. It really does. And people who understand prophecy have, I believe, a more dynamic day-to-day -day, uh, reality to an expectation of the Lord coming than otherwise. But it also can be a hobby horse that keeps you from being constructive. Verse 13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. As Moody put it so well, I get weary in the work, but not weary of the work. So yes, we may get tired, but we go forward because we're committed to the work. You betcha. Okay, that's two of the three things. Let's get to the third session of this closing chapter. Be doers, not just hearers of the word. Okay. One of the strengths, apparently, of the Thessalonian church was its attitude toward the word of God. They heard and received the word, believed it, and shared it with others. And they often get abused a little bit because we often contrast them in their native enthusiasm, 
by pointing to the Bereans, in that the Bereans were more noble, in that they received the word with all openness of mind, but they searched the Scriptures daily to prove which those things be so. In other words, the Bereans were from Missouri, so to speak. They had to be, had to be shown. They would test things, make sure they're correct. And that was the proper thing to do. But we shouldn't, in, the, in, in emphasizing that, overlook the fact that the Thessalonian church had an open and aggressive, receptive posture with respect to the Word of God and sharing it with others. But there is a problem here because some of the believers were becoming hardened to the Word. That is, they heard it but did not obey it. And we're all guilty of that, by the way. We get certain passages that we know so well, we've got to memorize, they sometimes lose their edge in impacting our behavior. The evidence of their unbelief and disobedience was seen in the way they lived. And their lives were a disgrace to the church, some of them. We must be hearers and doers of the Word. That's one thing that the Mahatma Gandhi, uh, so memorial, they asked him once, what, he, what did this, uh, some publicist ask him, uh, what he felt was the biggest obstacle to Christianity in India. And he said, Christians. Painfully poignant criticism. The behavior of criticisms turns a lot of people off. Watching some of the foolishness that's on Christian television is a turnoff to the, to the open, uh, someone may be a seeker, an open believer, and he sees some of the, the foolishness, and it, it's a turnoff. It's tragic, but it's, it's, it's true. It's interesting, my wife and I just published a book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. And it's interesting how that book has had incredible fruit. It's caused many people to recognize their accountability before the Lord. And it's really a call to accountability. And it's had, apparently, from all the mail, we're getting incredibly positive effects. But it also has caused some very surprising reactions in certain quarters. People who were abhorrent to the idea of being held accountable. The presumption that once you're saved, everybody in heaven is going to be equal. These are not biblical concepts. And yet they're widely believed uh, implicitly. And, uh, it's, and many people are quite disturbed to think that behavior matters. You didn't contribute to your salvation. Jesus did the whole thing on a cross. So that's called justification. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.